Happy Mother's Day to you mothers. I know there are many probably out doing dinner this week, um, understandably. But uh, I want to... Mothers are, mothers are very important. Because what, here's what happens. Good parenting, good parenting hands wisdom down to its children. Poor parenting basically uh, leaves their children to make wisdom up. You see the difference? Good parents, especially mothers, they hand wisdom down to their children. And we see that in the Proverbs. This is not just the father gets all the screen time, but we were told that the mother's behind this too in 1 verse 8. Hear, my son, your father's instruction. Forsake not your mother's teaching. Proverbs are really about parents handing wisdom down to people who need it. So, poor parenting. Just go figure life out, kid. So they make up wisdom. We have a culture full of made-up wisdom. So like Timothy, we uh, looked at his grandmother and mother at prayer, um, Lois and Eunice. Paul praises his faith and contributes it to coming from his grandmother and his mother. What a testimony. Right there in scripture, forevermore to see, uh, Timothy's mother and grandmother are named I love that. He didn't say, you've got great stock. (laughs) You've got great parents. He named his mother and grandmother. Paul must have met them or prayed for them because he knows their names. They're recorded there forever. Uh, Let's not belittle motherhood and the gift of it. And especially how fitting it is to look at that in the Proverbs as well. So I, like Timothy, uh, I give a lot of thanks to my mother, she was definitely an example of prayer. And some of you have heard my testimony know how much sacrifice they went through to show my siblings and I that God is not just a part of our life, but our life. Um, my grandmother, she uh, has played an, a magnificent role in the upbringing of my faith. She was a big part of some of the pivotal moments of my journey. And uh, my godmother, Uh, who prays for me every day. So um, I've got three. Take that, Timothy. (laughs) No, but I'm thankful. And I think uh, to all you mothers, grandmothers, great-grandmothers, and godmothers and mothers in the faith, um, we thank you for all who have handed down wisdom to us who have, and those before us who had done so as well. So, um, all right. We live, I say all this because we live in a world today which really doesn't like things being handed down to us. And I don't mean goods, handing down goods like, like, a, like a system of support. I mean tradition. We live in a culture that does not like things being handed down. We want to make it up for ourselves. C.S. Lewis had a memorable phrase, chronological snobbery. I love that phrase because that is him in the World War II days said that. It's even worse today that we as a culture look upon the generations before us as somehow less informed than we are. Okay, fair enough. They didn't have Google. I can't say we're more informed because we have Google because Google is the informed one. We just go to it to get help. Um, Okay, fine. Uh, We have more knowledge. Okay, cool. We know more about outer space. 
awesome. So you're telling me because we have our head crammed with too much knowledge, we're better than generations before us. Not according to wisdom. Chronological snobbery is this idea, I believe it comes mostly from evolution, in which we are always better than the generations before us, which leads to this despising of the past. The past is shrouded in darkness, so we trash tradition. That's where we are right now. Right now, a culture disdains tradition of any sort. If it has come from the generations before us, we are working feverishly and, dare I say, religiously to undo the traditions that were handed to us. You can go down all of them, from religion, to marriage, to the family unit, to how a nation works, to every single, how you talk to someone, all of it's breaking down. We need wisdom really badly. So we're talking tonight about the wisdom of tradition, because that's what the mother, the father, um, that's what Proverbs is passing down. So Jeremiah 6, verse 16, thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. Ask where the ancient paths are and go there. So, let's take a look. This is our fourth message in the College of Christ. We're going through Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. So this is segment one. This is sort of Wisdom 101, Primary School with Lady Wisdom. Um, Chapters one through nine of Proverbs are these lessons from um, the Father to the Son, which we can read as our Heavenly Father to us, His children. Lady Wisdom comes and tutors along the way, making occasional appearances, like Christ in the flesh, um, in a way. It's like a prefiguring of Christ's coming, Lady Wisdom being present. Then in chapter 10, which we'll get there in a few weeks, uh, chapter 10 begins Proverbs proper and goes all the way to chapter 31. The rest of the book is where you have these one-liners, or two-liners. A proverb is a short sentence founded on long experience. So that's wisdom. Hey, you don't have to, you don't have to try drugs to know that it's foolish. But how do I know unless I try it? (laughs) There's two different paths right there. Wisdom tells us, look, we have lived here what works. And folly says, I'll figure it out on my own. For that indeed is what wisdom is. Wisdom is that which God made the world with. Therefore, his universe, his world is ordered in such a way. Wisdom goes with the grain of his world foolishness goes against it. So just to recap and summarize where we've been. All right, let us look at Proverbs chapter 4. So you might remember there are 11 lessons from the Father. Um, We are now looking at lessons 5, 6, and 7 tonight. There's three of them crammed into chapter 4. So lesson 5. This is what he's essentially going to say to us. He's going to tell us this. Tradition is a treasure because it guides us on the path of progress. Tradition is a treasure because it guides us on the path of progress and guards our heart with vigilance. So, lesson five. Tradition is a treasure. Verse one. Hero sons, a father's instruction, and be 
attentive that you may gain insight. For I give you good precepts, so do not forsake my teaching. When I was a son with my father, tender, that means moldable, the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast my words, keep my commandments, and live. Get wisdom. Get insight. Do not forget. Do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her, and she will keep you. Love her, and she will guard you. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. And whatever you get, get insight. Prize her highly, and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a graceful garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. That's the fifth lesson. Tradition is a treasure. Notice in verse 3 and 4. This is where he's talking about it. The father now talks about his father to the son. So we've got three generations going here. Hey, listen, what your granddad told me when I was your age. When I was a son with my father, he taught me the same things I'm teaching you. To to let your heart hold fast my words. And then twice, verses 5 and 7, get wisdom. Get wisdom. And get a silencer, too. <laughs> get wisdom. Get wisdom. Um, we are... We're admonished to get wisdom because... We're admonished to get wisdom precisely because it is tried and true. That's what the father tells his son. Look, my grand, your granddad said, get wisdom. And I'm telling you, get wisdom because, look, he, he walked in the way of wisdom and found it worthy of passing on to me. I'm walking in the way of wisdom and found it worthy of passing on to you. And if you ask your great-granddad and your great-great-granddad, they would have told you the same thing. Wisdom is a tried and true path. You don't have to go out there and experiment and say, well, let's hope this rocket launches without blowing up. You don't have to do that. So I'm telling you, get wisdom, because this is tried and true. Now that word, get wisdom, get, it occurs. So he said get wisdom twice, verse 5 and 7. But he says the word get four times. Get wisdom, verse 5. Get insight. And then in verse 7, get wisdom. And again, get insight. Four times. This is this is great. How do you get wisdom? You gotta be really intelligent. You gotta be really confident. Nope. That's not at all what he says. If you want wisdom, here's where it begins. Get it. It's a choice. Wisdom is a choice. Lady wisdom is ready to come to the aid of any who desire her assistance. That word get is uh, a word that's also used. What it means is to buy. When you get bread, it's the same word. You buy bread. So Lady Wisdom here, go and give your give whatever it takes to get her. 
And you'll notice um, in verse 7 at the end, it said, and whatever you get, get insight. Well, that phrase, whatever you get, it, it to me sounds like it says, above all else. Like if you get anything, whatever you get, get this. Make sure this is top of your list. The NIV, unusually, rather helpfully translates this and says, though it costs you all you have, get insight. So not just put it at the top of your list, get it even if it costs you all you have. That's that's a confident call. But the Father can say this to us because this is a tried and true path. It worked at the foundations of creation. Creation's doing just fine, apart from us. Um, We are the ones who are not obeying his commands. So, Wisdom is tried and true. I like I like how G.K. Chesterton, how he referred to tradition. He called it the democracy of the dead. In other words, tradition is what all the dead people vote for. They're the ones telling us on the other side of the veil of this life, we say that works, you should do that. And the fool is going to listen to them and say, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. I am only, you know, I'm only on this side of the veil. I haven't lived my whole life, and I know better than you. The democracy of the dead. And it's not just the people who have recently died. It's going all the way back to the dawn of time, to the time when God gave wisdom to his people, to Solomon, and he penned these things for us. It's going back there. What is the consensus of all of these? They say this is the path. That's what tradition is, the democracy of the dead. He said this, Chesterton, this is. Tradition means giving votes to the most obscure of all classes, our ancestors. Tradition is only democracy extended over time. It is trusting to a consensus of common human voices rather than to some isolated or arbitrary record. It's really fascinating because here we are, we're, we are drawn to the charismatic, intelligent person who has a really loud and obnoxious opinion out there, and we like what he's saying, so we latch ourselves to this singular individual to shape our view of the world. Really? What Chesterton is saying is that is foolishness. You're going against this one rebel who's saying his own thing and turning down the consensus of history? So that's why tradition. I want to pass this down. Wisdom is something that we don't make up. We receive it. It's passed down. That, by the way, is what tradition means. In the Latin, traditio, it means to hand down. That's all tradition is. Hand down. Is our faith received? Or is our faith discovered? Did we unearth something? that our great, 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 great fathers of the church never knew? Be careful. John Corson always said, I remember this all my life growing up, he always said, if it's true, I mean, if it's new, it's not true. If it's new, it's not true. 
Our faith is passed down. Christ to the apostles, the apostles to the church fathers, and their fathers to their sons, and to their sons, and to their sons, and to their sons, until, boom, Calvary Chapel, and Chuck Smith, and like it's all a stream of tradition. It's all handed down. We don't make this up. We don't discover. We're not in pursuit of some creative, clever, no one's ever thought of the faith like this before. I'm a creative person. I know what that's like. And it's not good. So, <laughs> don't get me off on a tangent. So verse 6 and 8, he switches, you'll notice this, he goes from tradition to this idea of relation with Lady Wisdom. Um, love her, verse 6, do not forsake her and she will keep you. Love her and she will guard you. Uh, well, uh, Bruce Welke, who's one of the most famous commentators in the Proverbs, has said that when it says love her, it's, it's the idea is to cuddle her. This isn't just like, I prefer her. This is actually, she's a her, son, and you're gonna, you know, you're gonna cuddle her. I know that sounds weird, but it's, it's speaking to this intimacy. That this isn't just tradition, but this is getting to know something too. It isn't just dry, dead, stale, do whatever we're told. It's get to know what's been passed down to you. Um, embrace in verse 8. You'll see, prize her highly. She will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. So you go, love, cuddle, now embrace her. You'll notice in verse 20 of chapter 5, 25 verse 20, the word embrace shows up here to show you what embrace means. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? That's right after he tells us to embrace wisdom. You see what he's saying. This is, quite graphically, because a father's talking to his son, a very sexual way of talking about getting to know wisdom. In other words, have a relationship with wisdom. So tradition is a treasure. That was lesson number five. Lesson number six begins in verse 10. Uh, so we should treasure wisdom because, this is what this lesson can say, it guides us on the path of progress. Hear my son and accept my words, that the years of your life may be many. I have taught you the way of wisdom. I have led you in the paths of uprightness. When you walk, your step will not be hampered. And if you run, you will not stumble. Keep hold of instruction. Do not let her go. Guard her, for she is your life. Do not enter the path of the wicked, and do not walk in the way of the fool. Avoid it. Do not go on it. Turn away from it and pass on. Do you see the urgency there? Verse 14 had two commands. Do not enter the path. Do not walk in the way. But then verse 15 doubles it to four. Terse, quick commands. Avoid it. Do not go on it. Turn away from it. Pass on. Why? Why such? Okay, so the father's laying out for the son two paths. There's no middle, modest, mediocre path. There's no third party. The middle of the road's a poor place to live anyways. You're going this way and that way. The Father is calling us to choose one of either path. Don't, don't be that guy who says, ah, I'm not going to go for foolishness, nor am I going to go for the extreme wisdom. I'm just going to kind of live this like muddled, middle, like safe, safe zone. No, the Father does not give that opportunity. It's follow my path and forsake that one. There's just two. There's just two. 
So there's a choice here. Uh, so here's the reason. The reason he's pleading to avoid the path of folly is in verse 16 and 17. They cannot sleep unless they have done wrong. They are robbed of sleep unless they have made someone stumble. For they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. But the path of the righteous is like the dawn of the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. The way of the wickedness, the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. So here are your two paths. Here's what's ironic. Right after talking to his son about tradition, receive what's handed down to you, he then proceeds in the next lesson to say, because this is the path that will go forward to a brighter and brighter day. This is the complete opposite of what society tells us now. Society is saying tradition holds you back in the past. It keeps you, it hinders you. It hinders you from a brighter future because it restricts you to the past. Tradition is just restricting you. It's just holding you back. You're old-fashioned Christians. You're living in another century. (laughs) Rather, tradition roots us in the past. Do you hear the difference? The world would say that tradition is restricting us to the past. There's no future for you because you're stuck in two genders kind of live idea that's so like back in the dark ages we know better now but we would say tradition is rooting us in the past because where you have roots you have fruit in the future by rooting ourselves in tradition we are growing fruit for the future it is not restriction at all it's actually the only way to move forward you must have roots somewhere down before you can go up but the world just wants to keep on with their progressive style of language, right? Just keep moving forward, forward. We're on the right side of history. Keep going. Do you know what you're leaving? Do you know where you're going from? It's hard to know if that's forward if you don't know where the starting point was. Hence the need for being rooted in the past, being rooted in some kind of a tradition. And the father here makes us very clear that there are two paths and only one is brighter and brighter until the full day. So challenging. Here's the other reason that tradition is progress. It's because unrooting yourself from tradition leads to addiction. At least according to the father. Not in every case, but often. You noticed in verse 16 and 17, he talked about they can't sleep unless they do wrong. So they're dwelling on it at night. And in verse 17, they eat the bread of wickedness, which means, and the drink the wine of violence, which means bread and wine were the nourishments of the day. It means they're nourished by wickedness and violence. So at night, they're thinking about it. They're plotting it. It's in, their, it's in their mind. They're thinking about it because this is who they are. And then when they arise, they're nourished, not by righteousness, not by God, not by Christ, not by anything, but taking wickedness out on others. The bread of wickedness. This is their diet, wickedness. So these are ways of saying that they're stuck in this. That's not progress, friends. It is not progress to be stuck. The way of the righteous moves forward brighter and brighter. 
Jesus did tell us in John 8, 34, Truly I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And here you have it from the instruction right here. All right, and now 5, 6, and the 7th lesson, the third one tonight, is in verse 20. Lesson number 7 to the Son. This one is uh, treasure tradition, we saw, because it gives you the path of progress, but now because it guards our hearts with vigilance. Verse 20. My son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart. For they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all vigilance. For from it flow the springs of life. Put away from you crooked speech and let your and put devious talk or literally lips, put devious lips far from you. Let your eyes look directly forward. Your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet. Then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or the left. Turn your foot away from evil. In a nutshell, we do not need to seek sin to find it. Sin is already seeking us. To fall into evil and to error, all you have to do is unguard your heart. That's all you have to do. You don't even have to make the choice, the, the I'm going to be a sinner today. You simply have to stop watching over your heart. That will lead you down the slope into darkness. This is why he tells us to guard our, to guard our hearts because from it flow the springs of life. If I remember right, the New King James is the issues of life, I believe. No one's helping me, so I guess no one has it here. Okay, cool. Memory worked. That was good. Here, check this out. Isaiah the solitary. Not the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah the solitary, obviously a monk, 5th century. He said this. The demons cunningly withdraw for a time in hope that we will cease to guard our heart. Because what do we do? When we're under attack, we know. Oh, Lord, help me. Sin is at the door. And we're like ready. We're bare, we're. we're batting down the hatches, and we're getting sandbags, and our souls prepared, our hearts guard, and we're like, take that, devil! I am not doing it! And we're in battle, and we're calling for help. But, hear this, the demons, therefore, withdraw for a time in hope that we will cease to guard our heart, thinking we have now attained peace. Then, they suddenly attack our unhappy soul and seize it like a sparrow, Gaining possession of it, they drag it down mercilessly into all kinds of sin, worse than those which we have already committed and for which we have asked forgiveness. So, he admonishes, let us stand, therefore, with fear of God and keep guard over our heart, 
practicing the virtues which check the wickedness of our enemies, the demons. Ooh, wow. Here, here, okay, this is sort of screw tape letter-like, ancient screw tape letter writings here. Um, Getting into the mind of the demons that, hey, you know what? They'll actually lay off of you in order to get you worse. So, he who receives no help in war will betide you in times of peace. That's what Isaiah the Solitary will also say. Uh, Be careful if you don't receive help in war because in times of peace, you're toast. We must be careful always, always, always to guard our heart. You don't have to seek sin. It's seeking you. All you have to do is unguard your heart, and we are doomed. Why guarding our heart? Because we're told, from it flow the springs of life. You see, life is lived from the inside out. That might sound very 101, Christianity 101 to you, But that's not how our world sees it. We believe, outside of the church, that life is from the outside in. That the reason I'm miserable is because I married the wrong person. Or the reason I'm miserable is because everyone else got a promotion but me. Or the reason I'm miserable is because I don't drive that car on that commercial. That's living life from the outside in. But Christianity says that we live from the inside out. That's why we must guard our heart. And Jesus said so much in John 7, verse 37. You might remember this. He rose in front of the crowds at the temple and said, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. That's inside-out living. Jesus didn't say, if you thirst, we better go find it. There's a great stall down there on 3rd and Main of Jerusalem. Or this worldly good will make you feel good. It'll give you the good life. Jesus didn't say anything like that. He said, come to me, because from the inside-out will flow rivers of living water. Christian, we guard our heart because we have within us the power of the Spirit of God. Everything we need for life and godliness has been given to us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. That verse in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3, like it just so goes over our head, it's so astonishing. Every spiritual blessing has been given to us. Therefore, guard your heart. Don't open the gate so that you can accumulate more wealth or possessions or status or anything else the world has to offer because you have it here. Guard the heart. And if we keep Christ in us, we will have everything we need flowing from the inside out. This is not about achieving anything. This is about receiving what he has handed down to us himself. Christ himself is the great tradition we receive, if you can put it that way. Maybe it's a stretch. So guard your heart, brothers and sisters, by filling it with Christ. You'll notice the uh, plethora of, some people call this the anatomy of discipleship, because there's all these body parts in verse 20 to 27. Uh, 20 talks about the ear. 21 talks about your sight, your heart. 22 talks about your flesh or your body. 23, your heart. 24, 
uh, your lips, or crooked speech, or talk, literally lips. 25, your eyes, look straight ahead. 26, the path of your feet. And 27, your foot. So here are a bunch of body parts. And it's really important because on one hand, the eyes and the ears, first mentioned, these are the gateways into our heart. What we see is filling our heart. What we hear is filling our heart. And then our feet and our speech, these are overflows of what we fill our heart with. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Matthew twelve thirty four, And the feet, how do the feet choose where to walk, where to turn, what path to go on? The heart desires and the feet go. This is why we must guard our heart. This is the core to everything. So, we can see that the Father tells us to treasure tradition because it guides us on the path of progress and it guards our heart with all vigilance. You see how these lessons are linked. Brothers and sisters, we have a treasured tradition. I grew up not really knowing much about the history of my faith. I knew that my parents got saved in the church that I was first aware of. I knew about their salvation story. I knew about mine. That was the extent of Christian history for me. <laughs> goes really far. One generation. And then, of course, oh, my grandmother's Catholic. Okay, two generations. It wasn't until a couple years ago I got a little curious. I'm like, I don't know anything. You guys might remember a few years ago, actually, I taught. We were in Acts, and at the end of Acts 28, Pastor Mike and I switched off, I think, chapters in the book of Acts. I can't remember how that one worked. But I remember I taught 28, and afterward, I did the longest sermon of my life. It was so long. I remember it's back when we record on CDs. Uh, they had to actually put in a new CD. <laughs> it was um, because what I did was I went into the invisible chapters of Acts, known as church history. And I gave everyone uh, like an hour and a half tour de force of church history. That was like my first exposure, and it was amazing. And since then, I've been, I've been picking up more and more about the great and rich and treasured tradition of our Christian faith. That, okay, no one told me this, so I'm not blaming anyone. But as a kid, I just thought, oh, Calvary Chapel's when Christianity started. <laughs> and then as you get a little older, you're like, okay, there are other churches. So Martin Luther started the church. Yay, Martin Luther. And then you're like, no, Martin Luther was not actually the founder of the church. It was going on for 1,500 years before him and so forth. Um, I understand that for the common person, we don't actually explore the history and the tradition of our faith. But let me tell you, uh, someone who has been gradually growing in understanding my, my kingdom, the kingdom I'm a part of, that uh, we have a very, very, very wonderful tradition passed down to us from, you can even say the Jews, passed it down because Christ received it and gave it to the apostles and so forth. Um, consider this. So Christianity has been tested and tried for 2,000 years. We say that so often, I think it stops to boggle. It doesn't boggle our minds anymore. 2,000 years. What else in this world 
has been passed down for 2,000 years and is still going strong. What? Even kingdoms with the strongest and most mighty armies to guard them and protect them have risen and fallen without number over those 2,000 years. Also consider how Christianity never collapsed when cultures collapsed or nations collapsed or eras and epochs collapsed. It went right through all those ends of the worlds. It's gone through so much that should have ended anything else. That would have ended anything else. It has survived immigration to other languages and cultures. That's phenomenal. Because most things are simply national identities. They're cultural practices. But Christianity has not only moved on from nation to language to culture, but it has done so simultaneously. That's the other baffling thing. No language makes it inadequate. No culture can't be reached by it. This is obviously beyond human invention. Um, And then probably the most boggling is that it has continued for 2,000 years despite intentional attempts by some of the most powerful men in history to wipe it out. You can't stamp it out. Okay, so this is our, just without going to church history, that's our tradition. Unstoppable, immovable, it is for verse 18. It is the path of righteousness that, like the light of dawn, shines brighter and brighter until the full day. The return of Christ and the coming of the kingdom of God. That means tomorrow is brighter than today. And I'm telling you, today is so much brighter than any day in 2020. No amens? Okay, well, whatever. We've gotten way too conservative in here. <laughs> it does not merely... Christianity, in other words, is something like this. It doesn't merely work in one slice of history, culture, or conditions. It doesn't just work one slice. It's working everywhere. This is our great tradition. So, it's like wisdom. In the sense that we've been told by Lady Wisdom herself, I was there at the foundations of the world. He used me to weave wisdom into the fabric of the cosmos... Like wisdom, Christianity follows the grain of God's world. That's why it's been going and hasn't stopped since its beginning. And we say 2,000 years. If we want to latch on to Abraham, uh, it's estimated that he's 2,000 years B.C. So we're talking 4,000 years that the offspring of Abraham keep passing down the commandments of God. Incredible. It even survived the Old Testament, New Testament transfer. But here's the here's what we run into today. This is what I've run into today. Myself, in my own heart. I know you too. Because we're Calvary Chapel. So we have this trepidation when it comes to tradition. We have this great concern and angst. And oh no, tradition scares us. And as humans, we tend to resist what's handed down because we want to make stuff up. And here's the, here's the really stunning kicker. We've actually come to a point where we believe that if we don't make it up, it's inauthentic. We feel like the only true way to worship God is to make it up. Because it came from me. Therefore, it's genuine. It's of me. It sounds really weird when you say it, but you know that's what we think. 
Suddenly it sounds so self-centered. So this is how we tend to react to tradition in our trepidation. We either sever tradition altogether, and I think unintentionally this is how I was raised. Like, oh, no, none of that stuff. Calvary Chapel is a true expression of Christianity. So we sever all of that before us. Or we sever tradition or we serve tradition. And that's where people get full-blown ritualistic and tradition is the God above God. We've seen both instances. So let's look at both. We sever tradition. Why? Why would we sever tradition? Because we perceive tradition as the enemy of self-expression. We perceive tradition as this, this restrictive, you can't do that because tradition says so. But I just want to express myself. Cool. But you can't do that because tradition says you've got to do it this way. It's been passed down to you. Do it that way. So we say, I don't want tradition then. We'll just figure this out on our own. There's this author, James Smith, um, actually I'm in a, the young adult group that I lead at my house. We're going through his book, and he says that we've severed tradition precisely because we want to express ourselves. But in doing that, he says that we've actually made worship go upside down. We've actually made it go upside down. Rather than seeing God as the primary actor in worship, we see ourselves as the primary actor. We're the ones that make worship happen. We're the ones doing something. And we have made, in the end, we have made worship by making about ourselves, making us the actor. We've made it an expression endeavor. That's what he calls it, an expression endeavor. Hmm. So, yeah, of course, tradition can't survive with that. Here's what he actually says. This is a quote from him. He says, when we think of worship in this way, as an expressive endeavor, then we also assume that there that the most important characteristic of our worship is that it should be sincere. And I agree, our worship should be totally sincere. But if worship is expression of our devotion to God, then the last thing we want is to be a hypocrite. So our expression needs to be honest, true, fresh, genuine, and authentic. Well, yes, I agree. But we are in our where we are as a people is that we think that if it's handed down to me, it came from somebody else, so it's not authentic because it didn't come from me. That that's what we have begun to think. So we sever what has been handed down to us. The other opposite reaction to this is that we serve tradition. We serve it, and in this case, tradition becomes a tyrant. You serve tradition, it's your tyrant. <laughs> Why is it a tyrant? Because it is dead and it is inflexible. You talk about languages that are living, languages that are dead. Latin, for example, is a dead language. Why? We still use Latin. I just said trad- traditio tonight. We talked about Latin. But it's dead because it is not in active use in the sense that words are changing. English language is changing. That's why we get new translations of the Bible. We don't say thee and thou and thine anymore, right? It's changing. This because English is a living language. But when tradition is dead, it is stale, stagnant, rigid. 
It is inflexible, dead tradition. And we, when we give ourselves to it and serve it, it is now, therefore, this ugly tyrant. It demands strict adherence from us, and it seeks to enforce rules rather than to influence our lives. That's bad tradition, when it is enforcing things rather than influencing things. That's when tradition becomes a tyrant, and we are serving it, and we're slaves to it. Jesus confronted the Pharisees on this very point. In Mark chapter 2, verse 27, on the Sabbath day, the disciples were eating grain, right? They're rubbing the stock or the chaff off the grain and they're eating it. But, oh, you can't work on the Sabbath. That was work. So they, aha, your disciples are rule breakers. And what does Jesus say? The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Or in other words, the Sabbath serves us. We don't serve the Sabbath. Or let's go one more step. We don't serve tradition, but tradition serves us. Therefore, we realize we have a third option. We don't have to sever tradition, and we don't have to serve tradition. We can have tradition serve us. This is what it looks like when we allow the tradition passed down to us to serve us. It looks like a balance, as wisdom always is. It looks like a balance between the tradition itself and our relation with God. Tradition and relation are in balance. We actually already saw this in the first lesson of chapter 4. When the father said, look, what I'm giving to you is tradition. My father gave it to me. I'm giving it to you. But then he didn't stop there. The father didn't tell us, hey, that's good enough. They said so, so you do it. He then went on to say, so because wisdom is a tradition that's being handed down to you, I'm asking you to get to know wisdom. Remember the language of cuddling her and embracing her the same way one would embrace a prostitute? That's relationship. Tradition serves us only when it encourages and fosters this union with Christ, that we get to know him. That's what it looks like. It's not just top-down telling us what to do, but it's also bottom-up, us expressing ourselves. So when you cut off tradition, it's all our expression to God. When you let tradition master you, it's all it telling you what to do. But in the middle, when we let tradition serve us, it's yes, we're guided by, by the democracy of the dead, if you will. And we are also uh, given freedom to express what God is doing in our time now and in our lives at this moment. But you see, without both intention, you go astray very quickly. Recovering Catholics know what I mean on one end. And Pentecostalism, not to bash it, there's some good in both of these traditions, by the way, but Pentecostalism shows you the other extreme of the end when there's no tradition in all expression. So we are called to obedience, but to romance as well. Um, but here's the best part. Good tradition is embodied. It's embodied. Like verses 20 to 27, you had all those body parts going. 
uh, tradition is not just something that, okay, tell me, okay, cool. And we just kind of passively observe the whole thing to happen, like we stepped into the past and we don't know where we are. Um, tradition invites us to walk with it and to, see, without tradition, we tend to just allow theology to bounce around in our head. But tradition invites us ways to embody that and to do that. So, tradition, the reason why the Father is passing this down is because tradition guards our heart. Um, Think about that, how it guards our heart. Jesus warned us against, you might be thinking, but he told us, he, he, he complained about the Pharisees about tradition. But remember, he was warning us against bad tradition. You, what what does he say? You replace the commandments of God in favor of the traditions of men. Well, yeah, the traditions of men being used to circumvent what God is asking us to do. Yeah, that's bad tradition. That's what Jesus warns us against. So good tradition protects us from reinventing our faith in our own eyes. Good tradition protects us from reinventing our faith in our own eyes. Remember last week, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he'll make your path straight. Fear the Lord and be not wise in your own eyes. Trusting in the Lord is being wise through his eyes. Brothers and sisters, when tradition guards our hearts, it says, oh, hold on a minute. Do not reinvent your faith in your own eyes. Live it through the eyes of what God has passed down to us from generation to generation. I mean, I, I say all this because we, we're here. We're here. I mean, even that, the fact that the Catholic Church has had to have uh, symposiums to talk about is gay marriage Christianly sanctified or not? How do, where, what? What? But what has been passed down to us would make that a very easy answer, wouldn't it? Unless we're trying to reinvent our faith in our own eyes. Even Paul, the great apostle, even he submitted his preaching to the apostles in Jerusalem. Galatians chapter 2. I went to the apostles in Jerusalem, and there I told them what I've been preaching And they gave me the stamp of approval. Paul didn't say, oh, I discovered it. This is my unique expression of the gospel. Paul went to Jerusalem, the house of the beginning of the church. And he said, is this congruent with the tradition we're passing down? Paul submitted himself to it. And so, tradition protects us from novelty. It protects us from, we got to find something new. We got to do this differently. We need to have, oh, here's a good one. We need to, we need to be relevant. <laughs> we need to be relevant. That's such a common phrase in Christianity today. We need to, wait, wait. We need to be relevant? Who's been doing this for 2,000 years? While this generation and culture and politics has been talking about what they're talking about for what? One generation? Oh, we need to be relevant, right? Okay, what happens when the church looks at, looks at culture and says, oh, we're behind. We need to be relevant. What happens is we're admitting that we're followers. Oh, this is what people like. Let's do that. Uh, 
What happened to us leading the way? What happened to us to being the way? We're not aiming toward relevance and applause and saying, oh, now we fit people's what they're wanting or their lifestyles. We are saying, this is it. It's been handed down to us, and we are loving Jesus and following the tradition he's passed down to us, and the world will see in time. This, this whole gender thing and marriage thing that's completely dismantled right now, 20 years, maybe more, Lord willing, less, the world will finally wake up and say, what were we thinking? And woe be to the church or the group of Christians that went with culture because they, the world should stand up on them at judgment and say, and you didn't tell us you had a better way? Yeah, it might hurt. We might get legal things put upon us because we won't bow to the God of this age. But we know what is tried and true. And we are not going to go down other paths because we're not followers of any but what God has given to us in his scriptures and through the wisdom of our spiritual mothers and fathers and so forth. When Israel lost its way to go back to Jeremiah, he said, Jeremiah 6.16, Thus says the Lord, Stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. Our faith, our worship, our lives should be wise through God's eyes. This is wisdom. Lord, you are the eternal creating God, our source of all wisdom and life. May your spirit rest on us.